a Bible, I would invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, page 809 in the church Bibles. That would be of some help to you. We're going to read from the first seven verses, and then we're going to pray and ask God for his help. And for those of you that are new, or it's been a while, we've been working through 1 Corinthians um, verse by verse, beginning last year in October. So the reason why we're in this text this morning is this is the place we ought to be. We took a little break during the Christmas season, and so the reason why these verses, again, are being read and preached from is this this is their place. So just to let you know that. Okay, let's hear the word of the Lord. Verse 1, now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. Now, if you see, the NIV has a little text note. If you just move your eyes to the bottom of the page, you'll see that they put it also in quotes, that little statement, it's good for a man not to marry. I just want you to be aware of that as we move along. But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourself to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish with all men were as I am, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. And let's bow together as we seek God's help as we work through these seven verses on uh, marital sex. Oh, how strong the power of Jesus' name. It is stronger than any other name. How sweet the victory that bore my shame took the burden of our sin away. Hallelujah, what a Savior. We owe everything to Him. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah to our King. Oh God, please... Grant to us your help now as we study your word for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, things in our world as we have it now are not as bad as they could be, but nothing in our world right now is as good as it was created to be. And sin, original sin, in the garden, and sin current in our lives is the reason why this is so. And of course, an honest person would see these realities in many places, but one of the chief places is in the context of marriage and of singleness singleness, and human sexuality. So when we honestly look at the entire field of marriage, whether it be relationships or our desires, surely then, at least the older that we get, the more and more it seems to us that it's not quite the, quite the facile, simple thing of a storybook romance novels, or it's not as easy as promises made uh, by certain marriage gurus, because some Christian marriages might be good, and a few Christian marriages might be very good, but there is no such thing as a perfect marriage. Dishonesty takes place. 
Mistakes are made. Casualties are sustained. Harmful instruction people receive. And temptations come in which would take hold of us as individuals and would just ruin everything permanently if it wasn't for God's grace in Jesus. Now previously, Paul had been addressing in chapters 5 and 6 specifically about um, situations in the Corinthian church which he's heard about. Now he's addressing situations in which the church has wrote to him about. Which means, and this is very important, Paul's desire for the church, which ought to be every pastor's desire, is not just to see people converted, but that he might present them mature in Christ. Because there's coming a day when I'll have to give account for you and I will present you before the throne of God. And because of that, then Paul answers their questions. And the first question comes right off the heels of the things he was saying in chapter 6 about sexuality and purity. So it shouldn't be any real surprise that the first questions that he begins to answer, uh, beginning in chapter 7, are questions about marriage and about singleness and about sex. And as you think about their questions, you know, we are now 2,000 years removed from that setting. When people think about the Bible... And sometimes they think, well, the Bible is such a remote book, it's not really good for everyday living, that that, you know, is a book for another time and another place. You can safely assume either, one, they've never actually read their Bible, or two, they have never been properly taught their Bible. Let me just give you one example, and we'll get to this more fully in a moment. One of the medicines that Paul is going to give for sexual temptations that uh, would harm a marriage is more sex in that marriage. More sex, Paul is going to tell us, will save the marriage. Now, that's in the Bible. And you tell me that that is not relevant. And to some people, it might sound like, you know, that's an article from Maxim Magazine or Cosmopolitan or from Rolling Stone. That doesn't sound like the Bible. And so those of us who think that the Bible is bunk and it's boring or outdated, again, you've never actually read the Bible or you've never probably been taught the Bible. These verses are practical, they are honest, they are straightforward, and they are safe. They're safe because, and I have to think this way, they're safe because so many, both Christian and non-Christians, want to tell us adults exactly how to do what is so natural to do when we get behind closed doors. Because you'll notice, and you can see this if your Bible is open, that Paul doesn't get us past the bedroom door when he speaks on these things. He's modest in his instruction. Okay, have sex, marital couples. But he's not in the room giving pointers. He, he is, if you would, shut, has shut the door. He's on one side. We're on the other. So he's not at the foot of our beds. He rightly assumes that as adults made in God's image, we will know what to do, if you would, when the bell rings. And I am so offended and I worry when some Christian pastors or even speakers are in this kind of context are prepared to go way beyond the instruction from the scriptures and and they want to give us techniques and they want to give us methods and they want to give uh, men and women uh, wardrobe instructions wanting to tell us what to do and how to do what we do in the privacy of our bedroom. I mean, just think for a moment, wouldn't it be far better if we would just obey our Bibles and talk to our spouses in relation to these things, and you would tell them that these are your needs, and you would say something like, well, I'm not sure if you're good with this, and you have your needs, and I want to meet your needs, and so, because I love you, 
And because I want to get this right, and because I want to stay right and obey God, let's just talk this through with our Bibles open. So I wrote that line Thursday afternoon, and the first thing that came to my head, unfortunately, was a song from the Beatles. (laughs) This is part of it. Try to see it my way. (laughs) Do I have to keep on talking till I can't go on? While you see it your way, run the risk of knowing that our love may soon be gone. And then the refrain, we can work it out. We can work it out. Okay, so our first point, the context Paul writes into. It's so important that when we read these verses that we understand the context. So the situation in Corinth, as we've said numerous times, is just like Cohasset. Marriages were in trouble. Sexual temptation was exceptional. Confusion was surrounding just what it means to be married and what it means to be single. And at that time, and this is really important because this will help us understand Paul's instruction. At that time, in that context, Roman law and customs were practiced so that there were four types of marriages. One of which was called tent companionship. And that was a marriage between a male and female slave. So if a male and female slave wanted to be married, they would be allowed to live together, but the arrangement lasted only as long as the owners of the slaves permitted. So if the owner wanted to sell them, and if the owner wanted to have them, he could break up the marriage, do what he wanted by law, and since so many Christians were slaves, many of them were living within that framework in their marriage. Now just, can you imagine that? But that's what was happening. The second was that we would understand as common law marriage. And this was a recognition by the state of a marriage after the man and woman lived together for one year. The third type of marriage was arranged marriages in which fathers would sell their daughters as they determine to any prospective husband. Finally, the fourth type of marriage in the Corinthian context is almost like the pattern that as we would understand a husband-wife marriage in our day. It had legality to it. And there were ceremonial certainties to it as well. And so that was their context. And remember, again, most Christians at this time were slaves. So then it shouldn't be any surprise when the Christian teaching would come up against that. It was just so amazingly subversive. That's what's so cool about being a Christian today. We're subversive people to some of the customs and some of the laws of our day. And so because that was the case... It would be cause for many to be either confused, and so in their confusion, they had questions. Questions about marriage and about sex and about singleness. But, not only this, as a result of their confusion, not to mention the temptation that surrounded them, two extremes were present in the church, and and I've experienced both in my lifetime in churches. So some in the church, probably Gentile Christians, they were telling people that singleness was the only way to go. So in light of the temptation, in light of the confusion of marriage, singleness or celibacy is the only way to go. And and okay, it was for practical reasons, but they were saying it was for spiritual reasons as well. And, And the spiritual undertone was just making everything so difficult because they were saying that if you want to be a proper Christian, then you're going to have to stay single or act like you're single. So if you're a single person, stay single... Because marriage will affect your spirituality to the negative. Because that was one extreme. The other extreme was just the opposite. You had to be married. This was probably the Jewish Christians that were saying this. Genesis 2.8. It's not good for a man or woman to be alone. Or a man to be alone. So if you were going to live as a proper Christian, marriage was an absolute necessity. 
Okay, so that's our context, right? That's what Paul writes into. The second point then this morning is the question Paul answers, okay? And so just think this through with me for a moment because it will make tremendous sense. Their context, our context. Marriages in, marriages in trouble. Human sexuality, what it means, why it matters, unclear. Sexual temptations, super abundant. People react. Some people overreact. Nobody should be married. In fact, in the super spiritual person should remain single. Or the super spiritual person in a marriage context should only have sex for kids. And you better not enjoy it. Okay? Paul will tell them, no. No, marriage and sex in marriage is a gift from God. Singleness is also a gift from God that some have. Both speak nothing of your spirituality. Both, you can see this in verse 7, they're both gifts. People overreact, people uh, misunderstand. Marriage and sex in marriage is the only way to be fully human, right? Reach your full potential, get married. So if you're single, you are somehow subhuman. Or sex is just sex, it doesn't matter, go have it with anybody you want because your body doesn't matter, it's your soul. And so you can see then the questions come. So in verse 1, Paul, either he's making a statement in verse 1, or he's responding to their statement. Which one? Well, I'm not really sure, to be honest with you. But this is what I do know. It's good for a man not to marry. Now listen carefully. The word that is translated marry in the NIV is, is not exactly the word used for marriage or being married. Literally, it would read, and some of your translations might have this, it is good for a man not to touch another woman. So some translations will put that statement in quotes and then it begins to make sense because the phrase to touch a woman was a Jewish euphemism for sexual relations between a man and a woman. So if Paul is saying this or uh, if they're somehow asking this question, we can still understand what we should know about these, this verse by the verses that follow. So Paul says, it is good for a man not to marry. I'm going to follow the NIV. When he's saying that, he's simply making a practical statement. And this is very important. As you read the rest of the chapter, he's making a practical statement about um, gospel ministry. You see, this is how important gospel ministry is to Paul. Sex is very important in marriage to Paul. But gospel ministry is more important. And so he's saying that it is, he's not saying, excuse me, he's not saying that it's bad for a man to be married. He's simply saying that singleness, as long as one remains celibate, it can be good. So don't add to the text, right? We'll just say what it says. It's good for a man not to marry. Why? Well, because generally speaking, not always, but generally speaking, there are obvious advantages for a person to remain single in relation to the work of the kingdom of God. And again, this is a principle because sometimes it's better off if a man or woman gets married and their work is even greater uh, in relation to the kingdom. I mean, Aquila and Priscilla is one example who happen to be from Corinth. And every time uh, you read of their names, they're always read together in the book of Acts. So a single person, generally speaking, doesn't have near the responsibilities that marriage brings. And let me just read to you verse 32. You can flip the page and you'll see this there. This is what Paul is saying. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. Now listen carefully. This is what Paul is saying. It, okay, 
Is Paul saying, if you're a single person, then you know what? You can let it rip, right? No wife, no kids, no responsibilities. Weekends, massive. Hobbies, bring them to me. Fun, fun, fun until I have to get my knee replaced, right? Is that what Paul is saying? No, because that's too much our day, right? But what he is saying is that what makes your singleness so fantastic is that you have more time for the work of the kingdom. And if you don't know that or never experienced that, please don't knock that. It's a beautiful privilege to serve Jesus Christ week by week. Okay, it's the same for marriage, by the way. So when you are married, now you, know, you don't have just a traveling buddy or a weekend warrior because even in the marriage, just like singleness, the first thing isn't her and the first thing isn't him and the first thing isn't the kids. But the first thing is Jesus. And if you get that right, everything else will follow suit. Therefore, since Jesus is king, just follow my logic here. Since Jesus is king, if you try to live as if she is king, or if you try to live as if he is king, or you try to live like you are king, and even if you think your marriage is king, as as important and foundational as marriage is, you'll mess it all up. Which is probably why if we enter into marriage thinking that it's the main thing or the number one thing, or in some cases the only thing, eventually you'll ruin the thing. And it will be far less than God's revealed will for a Christian marriage. Let me just give you one quote. We need to move along, but I have a black book. I read this quote in premarital counseling, postmarital counseling, marital counseling. This is from Howard Hedricks. He's a great author, a great pastor. He's probably in his late 70s, early 80s. This is what he said. If a man can come into marriage with his paramount passion in life to completely satisfy his wife, And if the woman can come into marriage with her sole exclusive purpose, the satisfaction of her husband, and both are sold out to satisfying Jesus Christ, then you have the ingredients for an ideal Christian marriage. Do you know what he's saying? This idea that somehow that ministry is in conflict to uh, your marriage, don't buy that. It's in concert with your marriage. There's no battle. There's not to be any battle between ministry and marriage. If there is, then something's wrong. You're doing something wrong. You have to think that one out for yourself. Okay, back to the Bible. This is what God is saying. Singleness is a gift from God for some people. Marriage is a gift from God for most people. But polygamy is not a gift from God. That's verse 2, right? What's Paul's remedy for sexual immorality? Well, it begins with one man and one woman Marriage, that's his remedy, verse 2. But since there's so much immorality, each man should have sexual relations, that's the intent of that word, with his own wife, and each woman with her own husband. In other words, believe it or not, in this context, sex saves the marriage. Sex keeps you godly. Sex with your spouse keeps you godly, right? In their context, which is not so different than ours. Terrific temptation was at their doorstep. Temptation is at our doorstep and temptation is at our fingertips and temptation is just about everywhere else. Therefore, because there's so much sexual immorality, Paul says, sex saves the marriage. Now, verses two and three. If that was the only thing that Paul said about a Christian marriage, then, then that would be a rather low view of marriage, right? In other words, if, if the only reason to get married is because we can't control ourselves sexually, then that doesn't speak very well of a Christian view on marriage. However, if you know your Bible, you'll know that there are many other things that God's words teaches on marriage. Let me give you one. 
Maybe husband and wife, you can go home and read this together this afternoon. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 21. And when you read that, you're going to get a lovely picture of just how spectacular a Christian marriage is because Paul compares a Christian marriage to Christ's relationship to the church. Right? So it's beautiful. Jesus is fully committed to the church. Jesus will never leave the church. Jesus will give the church everything she needs. And see, that's the same picture that a Christian uh, marriage emulates. But, okay, the point here is, this is what Paul is saying. You guys, please be practical. Your husband and your, your wife, they're not behaving like a dirty little boy or a dirty little girl when they want to be with you or they need to be with you or if they would like to be with you more than you. And Paul gives this as a necessity for those who need it. And again, remember chapter 6. Sexual relationships between a man and a woman provide a deep intimacy that can grow. Sex increases intimacy. Marital sex increases intimacy. So, Paul would say, it's okay to stay single, but most of you can't. So be practical. Plan for and enjoy marriage. Now, think with me just for a minute. Can you see how practical this advice would be? I mean, it's just so blatantly honest about the human condition. And then think about our times. Think about this in the relation to the number of clergy having been told that they cannot marry. And think on this in relation to, say, the last 15 or 20 years, which we have seen and we've read of the sexual horrors concerning unmarried clergy. And while that doesn't excuse their behavior, it just gives indication to what Paul is saying is true. And think about how many good men who could serve the church well, that church well, could not because of their God-given sexual desire. You see, that's what's so great about this. Paul's just being honest to the human condition. And remember, this is a specific question in an actual historical context. Okay, this is, this is a great truth in light of our libido, in light of fallen sin, our fallen nature, in light of our need for to be touched, and in light of our need to express our love in this way. So I have a sub-point to so my first point. Sex keeps you godly. Marital sex keeps you godly. Number two, this is a big one. Sex saves the world. <laughs> sex saves the world. Well, you say, well, how's that? Well, let me tell you how. Because when you take the whole Bible and why the Bible gave sex and marriage, I can just break it down in just a few words, okay? Number one, procreation, right? Genesis 1, 28. Be fruitful, multiply little bits and pieces of you and your, and your wife or your husband, Running all over the world. Sex saves the world. Procreation, recreation. This is a mutual pleasure. In the highest sense of the word, uh, the song, uh, tonight I celebrate my love to you. My body, your body. This is a gift. Uh, This is a heartfelt expression of how I felt about you and how I feel about you since the first day I saw you. So procreation, Recreation, cooperation. This is great. Sex saves the world. Genesis 2.18. We two are one. A sexual intercourse in marriage increases intimacy, increases affection. We two are one. We are in the deepest sense one now. So I won't be coming after your spouse and you dare not come after mine. Sex saves the world. Personification. We've already talked about that. It's a picture of Christ in the church. And then finally, verses 2 and 3, sanctification. 
Sanctification for the marriage. Because the fall had an effect on everyone. And, and in relation to that terrifically difficult context, our context as well, and the mindset, sex was designed in part to save the marriage. Sex keeps you godly. Sex will save the marriage. Sex saves the world. Then look at verses 3 and 4. And don't use sex as a weapon. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. So again, remember the context. Some of these people had been married as unbelievers. Later on, one of them would become Christians. And they were being taught and they were believing that the way to be a proper Christian is to be celibate. So they come to faith. They're already married, but they think, I should be celibate. Out of the bedroom, you know, on the couch. And that was growing in the church in Corinth. And Paul says, listen carefully. If you are married, there is no place for celibacy in marriage. You didn't get married to live as a single. You are not a single. You are married. Able-bodied, married people are to be involved happily with each other physically. But don't use sex as a weapon. Because I want you to see this. The emphasis in these verses is not on our rights, but on our responsibilities. Do you see that word duty in verse 3? The word duty can be translated debt. In other words, what Paul is saying, give what you owe to each other. Give what you owe to each other. And the balance that Paul gives here is absolutely perfect, okay? The man and the woman each have a mutual debt to each other in relation to marital sex. Loved ones, marriage is not the place to stand up for your rights. Marriage is the decision to serve our spouse in the bedroom and out of the bedroom. The ground is level for the husband and wife. No one has the priority. They both are the priority, which... And again, think with me, that would have turned the ancient world upside down. Who was the king in the home in the ancient world? It was the man. He could call the shots. If you want another lady on the side, no big deal. He, by rights, he could do it. And all of a sudden, Paul is saying, hey, hey, man. No, one woman only. You see why Christianity began to turn the world upside down? And the farther we move away from this pattern, oh, I can say this. I think this is correct. The less we have sex in marriage, the more those patterns could be poured out to the world. And by the way, the tense of the verbs in verses 3 and 4, it's written what is called the present continuous. And let me tell you why that's important. When Paul says verse 3 and 4, he's telling us that our sexual duty is, is, is to be a habitual duty and not an occasional duty. Okay? Habitual, not occasional So you can see how practical this is. And do you see why I said at the beginning of the talk, Paul stops right at the bedroom? You see why I said that? Because those of us who are married, we're going to have to work out verses 3 and 4 on our own. Okay? You're going to have to define a habitual and occasional in your context. Could I define that for you? No, I could not. Could I define um, occasional for you? No, I could not. No one else could. That is your privilege. There are only two lovely people qualified to define those terms, habitual, occasional, in a Christian marriage. And it's you and your spouse. 
And again, that's why, you know, the very popular pastor a few years ago, he told his congregation in relation to these things, hey, hey, my wife and I are going to have sex every day for a whole week, and you should too. See, when he said that, he should have just zipped it twice. You have no right to say those things. You have no authority to say those things. And you know how it goes. He says them, and then someone else says them, and someone else says them, and then you just made a, just a big hash out of everything. They ruin everything in relation to this. Sexual relations in marriage is sacred. It's proper. It's obligatory. It is a pleasure. It is a privilege, and it is a responsibility. And only the husband and wife before God can decide these things. But again, sexual satisfaction to our spouse is our marital duty. Sex helps us in holiness. A super spiritual married Christian is not a celibate Christian. A super spiritual married Christian is, uh, is not one who tells you when I'm ready, Christian. Well, why not? Verse 4, a wife's body is not her body, it's her husband's body. A husband's body, verse 4, is not his body, it's his wife's body. When we say, I do, I give up my body. I no longer have exclusive rights over my body. One plus one equals one in marriage. A two-ness, which is a oneness. Listen to Pryor. He's a commentary on this. He comments on uh, verses 3 and 4. At the practical level, this is a very challenging word to all Christian couples. Many reasons are given for withholding what is due to the other sexually. Tiredness, resentment, disinterest, stress, boredom. For the Corinthian husband, so wedded to their own rights, this very earthly instruction must have, have been something of a body blow. blow. A body blow. Do you get that? Whether it's in Corinth or Cohasset, it's the same thing. Fornication was thought to be a married man's right in that world. And Paul says, no. Your body is not exclusive of your body. It's her body and vice versa. Now, now on with it. Now on with it. Now before we go on, let me just say this. And this is important. Verse 4 gives no basis to violate our spouse's walk with Christ in purity and in holiness on account of the fact that you now have 50% of their body. In other words, you'll hear people say this from time to time. I've heard people say this. So... In order to keep things exciting in the bedroom, then you know, we'll watch this adult movie or we'll read this thing to help us out. Paul would say, no, no, a million times no. The freedoms that we enjoy in the bedroom are between each other, but it's still before God. Right? It's still before God. Philippians 4.8. Uh, the pure thing, the holy thing, the lovely thing. Think about those things, Mr. and Mrs. X. In, in other words, please forgive me, you don't have to go trash to the mind to enjoy the experience. When you come together with one another, you continue to think on the things that are pure and holy and lovely. Sex and marriage doesn't mean anything goes. Verse 4 doesn't mean our spouse has to be in submission to everything that we think is fine. Because if we think that is the case, we better be very, very careful. Okay, then our final point. Number one, the context Paul writes into, it's Corinthians is sex world. And you'd have to be blind not to think that our world is pretty much the same. The question he answers, the answers can be summed up. Sex saves the marriage. Sex is godly. Sex saves the world. Sex is our duty. Not having sex will not bring you closer to God. Finally, 
And thank God, finally, the concession that he makes. Verse 5. Look at your Bible, please. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent. In other words, one does not inform the other in this. Rather, both agree. Now listen carefully. If there is a dominant voice in the marriage, whether it be husband or wife, can you see the problem in this? And if there is a dominant voice in your home, uh, just be careful, please. Just, just stop it. Marriage is giving, not getting. And it's not self-indulgence. And it's not self-rule. Do not deprive each other. Don't use sex as a weapon. Don't use sex as a manipulative tool, a reward, or punishment. Don't do that. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time. Not all time and not your time. A time. So that you may devote yourselves to prayer. In other words, okay, you can see sexual activity for a reason, for a time. And guess what that activity is? A husband and wife praying together. Two questions. Husbands and wives, do you pray together? Second question, husbands and wives, do you ever take time to stop sex stuff and get together? Okay, so careful, listen carefully. One, there's obviously special powers, if you would, and special graces, maybe a better word, when a husband and wife pray together. But, pray beside the bed. But eventually, you have to get in the bed. Look what Paul says. Because when you're done, come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, it's not very flattering, but it is very true. And that's the concession that Paul makes. In other words, listen carefully. No matter how spiritual we think we may be, don't push the limits of our own self-control. And don't push the limits of your spouse's self-control. Original sin is in us. And again, your spouse is not being a dirty little boy or a dirty little girl if they need to be with you. And loved ones, that's in the Bible. And to be honest with you, I'm excited about that. It's so truthful. It is so helpful. Satan has a million clever ways to tempt us when we least expect it, right? We've said this before. It might take 30 years to create a terrific reputation, but it only takes 30 minutes to destroy it. A husband cannot meet every need of his wife, but he has one need that only, that only she can meet. And a wife can't meet every need of her husband, but she has one need that only he can meet. So Paul is simply saying, and this we're going to be done, plant some hedges around your marriage. Right? Verse 7, we're not all Paul. We don't all have the gift of singleness. Everyone has a gift. If you're married, plant some hedges around your marriage. The prickly ones, right? So that you can't get into marriage so easily or bad people can't get into marriage and we can't get out so easily. Well, how do you do that? Well, I would begin by 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 7. Again, sex saves marriages. Marital sex saves marriage. Sex in marriage and only in marriage is godly. You're not being spiritual if you avoid sex. Sex saves the world. Sex is our duty. So gentlemen, give your body to her. Ladies, give your body to him. Habitually, not sporadically. It's theirs already. Talk to each other first. I mean, be very honest. And be good to each other. You might get to grow old. And really old together. Don't use sex as a weapon. As a tool to manipulate things. This is not the circus. But it is a glandular issue also. 
Sex is more than that, but it's not less than that. You know, Hollywood and, and the um, lust side of Hollywood, but also, you know, the romantic side of ho- Hollywood. You know, both are wrong. You can't, you know, on the lust side, I hope we understand, the romantic side, you know, they do like cut, and you go here, and you go there, and then cut, well, no, you're not doing it right, put your face here, and put your face there, and then they cut and edit, and they give you that thing that they give you. You can stop sex only if you both agree, only for a bit, only for prayer, then soon back at it. I'm going to take a, a liberty here real quick. I remember a context I was in probably 11 years ago where I was teaching at a, um, it was a halfway house, and the two leaders were husband and wife, and I was in the car with them for two hours, and I remember I was sitting in the back seat. I was like their kid, and they were in the front seat, and they were, they were mad at each other. You could just tell. The tension was like, oh, Lord, please help me, you know. They were mad, and so I just started poking around, and I said, well, hey, well, how's it going? And uh, So long story sh- short, they had committed themselves for a way too long of a time to, to not have sex in their marriage. And in me, I mean, it was like way too long. And I said, guys, can I just give you some advice? <laughs> Kiss each other immediately. I mean, just, duh. so here's the thing. So I was there for a week. Between the first day where they could have killed each other and the last day, they were just like husband and wife again. So practical. Yeah, you can stop for prayer, but, but don't, don't stop too long back at it and loved ones and and this is what i'm done i mean wouldn't you want to be a shining example to a sex crazed twisted world i mean i wouldn't want to imitate the world here but i would want to be an example to the world and this is great news i mean this is honesty from the bible straightforward it protects us from silliness. Everybody matters in the marital relationship. Singleness is wonderful. Marriage is wonderful. So you're sensible people. You'll have to think these things through. Thank you for your attention. Let's bow together and let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, how we thank you for the gift of sex. We thank you, God, that you have wonderful plans for a husband and wife in that context. And we thank you that you're so holy and pure that even if we feel a little awkward or uncomfortable in these things, you have holiness in mind when you gave us these instructions. So we thank you for that. Help us to be careful and thoughtful and, and to be um, stewards of what we've been giving and also protect us from bad people who would come in and say horrible things or try horrible things that would destroy our marriages. And then most of all, God, protect us from ourselves so that we can freely and happily obey you as we've just heard from your word. Now may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be ours both today and evermore. Amen.